0: I believe this came out a couple of days ago. And this article from our fundamentalist friends at the Huffington Post uh, reads Now, I hope that all of us come away tonight to understand that what do newspapers do? Sensationalize. Okay, sensationalize. Good. Why would they do that? (laughs) Bling, bling. Money, okay? This text, all right, and we even discussed this in, in this this past week, it's a 4th century Coptic text, all right? So, the article reads, The Gospel of Jesus, Jesus' wife, that's what they're calling it now. New early Christian text indicates Jesus may have been married. Number one, no one in the media today acknowledges that there's good evidence for believing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul and every other New Testament writers is good evidence for what actually Jesus said. The oldest writing in the Bible is 1 John, the book of Revelation, and that's between 90 and 95 A.D. Let's say Jesus died in 30 A.D. Some people say it was 30, some people talk about 33. You're talking about the oldest Evidence we have from the Bible is, let's say, 60 years after the event. They say that there's no way that we can be rational and logical and have faith in God's Word, but yet something from the 4th century here is early. Let that sink in. This is not early. Several hundred years after Jesus lived and died, okay? it does refer to Jesus' wife. And often when we find Coptic writings, it's against Christianity. There's a big ancient heresy called the Gnostics, where the Gnostics kind of believed um, that it's the gnosos, it's the knowledge. And it's not about repentance of sin, it's not about faith in Jesus Christ. It's just that you get the knowledge when you just are walking along one day and all of a sudden the knowledge strikes you. And they also would teach that It doesn't doesn't matter what you do with your body, okay? Because it's all—Jesus saves your soul, right? So if if Jesus and and the knowledge is all about your soul, then it doesn't matter what you do physically. New Testament writers slam against that. Paul presents your bodies as living sacrifices, right, holy and acceptable unto God. It does matter what we do with our bodies. So even if this is not a forgery, it's probably from a perspective that was anti-Christian to begin with. Not only that, but it's from several centuries later. So I, got, I tagged a couple of other articles here. Um, this is one of the first inflammatory articles, alright? And then we can go to our good friends over at the Washington Post, um, right here, and it says, did Jesus have a life, okay, about a day later? New historical discovery raises old question. Now, the one who's popularizing this is a lady named Karen King. Um, she's a scholar from Harvard, but she's into radical feminism. That's one of her planks. So often what you find with some scholars is that anything that would support their position, they're going to grab for it. They're already calling this, once again, Huffington Post, they kill me. It's like, you know the Sandlot. You're killing me, Smalls. They're already calling this little fragment that they said is a little bit bigger than a stamp the Gospel of Jesus. Like it's a complete book and like it has an index and appendix and all that. So here we have just a couple of days later from MassLive.com, Harvard scholar Karen King's claim of Jesus' wife scrutinized. Okay? Okay? Now, if you want these articles, I mean, you can find them or I can send them to you. But just two days later, people are saying, hold on a second. We need to actually scrutinize this to see who wrote it and why. And by the way, any time we, we, we study history, the further that the writing is from the original event, the more probability that it's been twisted around. And so our question is, why can't we trust what was 60 years, and in the case of, like, the Gospel of Mark, maybe 15 or 20 years from the original event. Why is that not good evidence? But this 4th century Coptic text is early. It's called an agenda. Okay? And then even if, okay, I don't believe that Jesus was married. I don't think he came to have family and kids. I think he came to to do that. But even if somebody comes up and they're arguing, they say, well, Jesus, it says Jesus had a wife, And I don't believe that Jesus had a wife. I don't believe there's evidence for it. But is there anything wrong with being married? It kind of weirds us out that Jesus would be, if in fact he was, which I don't believe he was at all. But if someone wants to come and and use this to say that Christianity is not true, well, that, that has no bearing, Right? Once again, St. say, Jeff, are you saying that Jesus could have been right? No. I mean, I think, and, and this is an interesting thing too, Josh McDowell discovered this. This blew my mind, blew my mind. Did you know that we could reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses from just the writings of the early church fathers? They used so much scripture that even if we didn't have one manuscript of the Bible, the New Testament, we could reconstruct all of it just from them quoting Paul, in the book of Romans, for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, we could reconstruct the whole thing just from the secondary writings of the early church fathers, a.k.a. the guys who were taught by the apostles. Isn't that cool? And I would have thought somewhere along the line, somebody would have referred to Jesus and his, his wife. Right? Once again, when people bring things like this and they think it's a defeater for Christianity, you can even concede the argument and say, and? What does that have to do with the resurrection? See? So we can even lean way back, get against the ropes, and they still won't have any type of a knockout punch. So when people throw stuff like this, and Fox News, I heard I didn't read the article, did a, you know, interview and all this stuff, it's to get viewers, and almost all of this stuff, like when they found Jesus', uh, the tomb, right? little estuary box, and it had Jesus. Uh, there's a book by Richard Baucom, amazing British scholar. And they actually went back and all the ancient texts they could find, they got the the main names that were used in the first century with Jews, and there were a lot of people named Jesus. Okay? It was kind of like John today or Jeff. And so just the fact, I mean, that's like, you know, going and uncovering, you know, a Confederate grave and, and seeing, you know, like, uh, like, Robert and his rifles like wow you have the rifle of Robert E. Lee what there are a lot of guys named Robert during that time so uh, I just I don't know if any of you have been have seen this I just want to address that and once again say that things like this do not shake um, or affect our faith and um, so you can take you can you can lean against the ropes and let them swing away until they've exhausted all their arguments and say what does that have to do with the resurrection or we can say Well, why is that fourth century Coptic text authoritative when it's about this big and it's several hundred years after, but my New Testament is not authoritative and it's within the first generation? Explain that to me. I'm not catching that. So, you have any comments? Any thoughts? Other than our media is done. And one thing too, (laughs) say what? One thing, too, um, I, and I just learned about this couple the last couple of years with the Ph.D. program. Um, in order for something to really be like you can trust this, you can rely upon this, these ancient documents that they find have to, to be looked at by textual scholars to where they actually examine it through science and through comparing it to other manuscripts to even confirm if it's real. Then not only that, but then it's peer-reviewed. People write about it in academic journals to where this professor writes about it from this school. And all these other professors can try to take down the argument. And then if it passes the test of rigorous scholarship, then you can say we have the gospel of Jesus. But what happens in our culture is a professor of basically radical feminism can say, hey, I found the gospel of Jesus. All the news networks are like, yes, we can tell everybody we know who found Jesus' life. And so then they put it on, and everybody thinks it's a new discovery, and it's not been verified at all. And you saw the articles two days later after the original news story broke. Now people are backing off saying, we've got to actually scrutinize this and it's probable that there's nothing to it to begin with. So do not be dissuaded by sensationalism. Uh, Dan Brown's book, um, that's where he had that whole theory going at. Mm-hmm. He was back and mm-hmm. was wasn't Mary? Wasn't Mary. Right, right. He was mm-hmm. Mary. had a child, supposedly. Right. That theory not there. They didn't turn it out. It's it's mm-hmm. I actually watched the Da Vinci Code movie, and there is something called parallel... Parallel mania, I think I'm saying that right, to where you have almost like a manic obsession with trying to find parallels about something. And that's, uh, and Dan Brown actually wrote that book as a novel. A lot of people said, oh, this is actual history. He wrote it as a novel. So I mean, Dan Brown may be okay guy, it's just a novel. A lot of people said, no, this is the gospel truth, you know, and all this crazy stuff about the Knights Templar and, and who knows what. And, but it makes money, right? And we live in a free society and if you want to write a book that makes money, you can do that, but it doesn't mean that it's true. So um, okay, all right uh, yeah, you have the notes there. Um, I have uh, put a little addition there on the bottom. Um, we're just going to run through this really quick. Last week, we just dis- we discussed some of these views um, about the end times. And we're going to get to those three views of what happens between a person's death and the resurrection, the intermediate state. Okay, we looked at number one, soul sleep. Does anybody remember why that's probably not the best option to take? By soul sleep, we mean when a person dies like a believer, it means that it's like they're asleep. They're not in the presence of God, they're just asleep. What may be a reason why we should not hold to that? Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Those annoying Bible verses that are so clear, like, if you die, you go to heaven or hell. It's like, okay, all right. So, good. Soul sleep. Second, we looked at um, purgatory. We're just going to run through this. We're all on, on the same page. Um, purgatory, problems with that are multifold. If purgatory is real, then that means that Jesus didn't pay for all of our sin, that we kind of have to help him out. And um, we looked at that last week. And then we come to uh, the third view, which is instantaneous resurrection. This is where we left off last week. Which means that the person immediately is given a glorified body immediately after death. Okay? That means that the second that a believer dies, God supernaturally grants them their resurrected body. Okay, and they enter into the presence of the Lord. Problem with this would be why, I mean, you have it in your notes. I don't know if we have enough time to get to it tonight, but read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul breaks down all of that, okay? This whole entire argument. But if believers are given a glorified body immediately upon death, then why would Jesus and the Apostle Paul continually reference the resurrection of the dead? A resurrection unto life when we're given a glorified body. Another problem with this would be why does does Paul tie the glorified body to the resurrection? You always see those two together. And then this question, um, have any of you heard of Colton Burpo? He's the... um, I believe he was the 11-year-old boy uh, or 8-year-old boy in 2011 who claimed that went that he died and went to heaven and saw all sorts of, of things. That is in your notes, the very last, I believe it's the very last entry there, uh, treatment from William Lane Craig on that, why we should be very, very careful um, to believe that wholeheartedly and His view would be basically an instantaneous resurrection and a lot of inconsistencies. We're not trying to be mean to a little kid, um, but we just want to be truthful, right? And so you can go check that out uh, later. But here's the fourth, what I'm going to call the biblical resolution to what happens to people um, once they die. Uh, Number one is there is a difference between Hades and Gehenna. Does anybody know what Hades is commonly translated, the Greek word, in our Bibles as? Hell. Yeah. Yeah. Almost always, when you see the the English word hell, it's referring to the Greek word Hades. Then there's something called Gehenna. And Jesus, the Gehenna was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. That's where they would throw the bodies of criminals, all the trash. And there were fires that continually burned all the time. And Gehenna is what Jesus referred to as like what we would call the second death what hell will ultimately be thrown into is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth so there is a difference number 1 hades is temporary let's go to Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 if you have your bibles if you don't have them I'll just I'll just read it here Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, Also make a note here, this is not in the PowerPoint, but in Revelation chapter 20, there's the great white throne judgment. And that is where um, it is going to be payday someday. And that is where all of it says hell will be cast into the lake of fire. Okay. So hell would be, it is hell, it is bad, but it's like a temporary holding cell. Number two, Gehenna is eternal. Mark 9, uh, 43 and 48. You can check that out later. But Gehenna is what we would call the lake of fire. Okay? So people say, well does that mean that hell's not going to be forever? Revelation says that hell will be cast into the lake of fire. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Number three. The righteous dead do not descend to Hades. Alright? Roman Catholics would often confuse Hades with purgatory, and there would be some uh, type of connection there. But the righteous dead, um, in Matthew chapter 16, go with me there, chapter 16, verse 18 and 19 says, and Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? Believers don't go to hell. All right? Also Acts 2.31. Okay? So, number four... The righteous, instead of going to hell or Hades, or at least their souls are received into paradise. Uh, Luke chapter 16 with the rich man in hell. Does anybody remember what metaphor Jesus used to where the Lazarus went? He went to whose bosom? Abraham's bosom. Which for us, let's just stop for just a second to say, to say that this man died and he went to another man's bosom. Imagine using that sharing the gospel out on the street. Sir, ma'am, are you sure that your eternal destiny will be within Abraham's bosom? And they're like, What kind of a weirdo are you? Alright? Within Jewish culture, within Jewish culture, this this was just a metaphor that Abraham was, was a believer in God, he is in heaven. But that was the ultimate metaphor of of he, of closeness, of security, of being safe from harm. Are we saying Abraham's a metaphor? No. In fact, Jesus says that Lazarus was talking with Abraham, right? There in, in heaven. And remember the rich man addressed whom? He addressed Abraham. says, can you just put the tip of your finger and water on my tongue and cool? That's crazy. So right here, um, and also in Luke 23, like you referenced, Ben, Jesus told the man on the cross... The repentant thief, um, when the resurrection comes, you will be with me in paradise. Is that what he told him? He told him, You will be have soul sleep until the resurrection. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Alright? So I believe with total confidence from God's word that when a believer dies, they're spirit that goes into the presence of the Lord. So I believe not just trying to make ourselves feel better or anything like that, but a person when they die, if they're saved, they go to be with Jesus. Okay? And I think that there's evidence that often God sends angels and often, and this, this is a very interesting discussion. doesn't happen all the time. But that God will provide angels to transport or to be, I guess, messengers with people to heaven. And a lot of people, this, this, there are a lot of examples of this, but people who have died, who have been atheists, who have lived their lives hating God, have had visions of demons clawing at them and dragging them to hell at the very last minutes. It doesn't say it anywhere in Scripture, but I don't think that we would be wrong to think that God sends angels to help those believers pass over that That river of death into the presence of the Lord. Because angels are ministers. They minister too. And I don't think that we would be unbiblical to say that when a person has rejected God and their heart is hardened, God says, you don't want me, I'll let your transporters come too. Once again, that's not a doctrine. But I'm saying that if we do believe that, we wouldn't necessarily be unbiblical Um, Number five, Paul equates being absent from the body with being present with the Lord. This is in your notes, the text, all throughout the New Testament, that once you die, you go to be in the presence of the Lord. Okay, So then the question is, well, why would there be a final judgment? Now think about that. If we're saved through Jesus, through His grace then why would there be a final judgment if the lost people go to hell and then hell will one day be cast into the lake of fire? Um, here's a statement. Since when believers die, they pass immediately into the presence of God, and when unbelievers die, they pass into a state of separation from God and the endurance of punishment, we may wonder why God has a time of final judgment established at all. Anybody? Okay. This is from John, John Stackhouse in his book, Evangelical Futures. Um, Burkhoff wisely points out that the final judgment is not for the purpose of letting God find out the condition of our hearts or the pattern of, our, of conduct of our lives, for he already knows that in every detail. Burkhoff rather says of the final judgment, put your seatbelts on here, it will serve, in the final judgment we're talking about Judgment Day, the return of Christ, D-Day, okay? He says it will serve the purpose rather of displaying before all rational creatures the declarative glory of God in a formal forensic act which magnifies on one hand His holiness and righteousness and on the other hand His grace and mercy. Moreover, it should be borne in mind that the judgment at the last day will differ from that of the death of each individual in more than one respect. It will not be secret, but public. It will not pertain to the soul only, but also to the body. It will not have reference to a single individual, but to all men. Then the question, will we recognize people in heaven? How many of you have ever had anybody ask that before? Like, are we going to know anybody there? Okay. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. The Apostle Paul writes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Translation, we will be recognizable and we will be able to recognize. Now, this gets into a a really interesting discussion on what we will look like in heaven. Okay? Okay? Imagine if you've known someone, you met them when they were 50, you knew them until they were 100, you never knew the the, the younger them. Like, how how will we be able to know? I don't know how we'll be able to know, but I I often think of this. If you've been to someone's house and they've shown you their kid pictures, and let's say they're, they're, they're up in years, you can almost always be like, look, it's a... It's a, it's a mini, you know, whatever their name is, it's a mini Jeff. Like you can see those resemblances no matter what age they are most of the time. And so some people say, well, what age will we be in heaven? Well, what happens between that transform, transformation? I'm not really sure. Um, some people say that everybody will be in their prime. Um, and I've heard somebody, some people say, well, that means I'll, I'll have all my hair back and I'll be back in good shape, you know, not like I am now or, or whatever. I'm going to be back in my good looking days. And I, I always have kind of something that I have to say is, you know, heaven's not going to be a beauty contest. It's, it's our, our happiness and heaven is not going to be our looks it's not going to be how much hair we have or how skinny we are. Our, our joy in heaven is who we're going to be with. Okay. Now, I mean, does that mean that we're all going to be walking around having to use walkers? I don't think so. All right. But I do think that the Lord will definitely restore um, our our bodies. And some people say, "Well, what is the glorified body?" Um, I'm going to jump over to that. And read this. Conclusion here, okay? When we'll talk about the glorified body. Upon death, this is what I think the Bible teaches, alright? As close as I, can, as I can get it. Believers immediately go into the presence of Jesus Christ and experience unspeakable joy, whereas unbelievers immediately go to hell, Hades, where they experience torment, misery, and punishment. The future resurrection at the second coming will provide believers with glorified bodies. Glorification, where unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire, which will endure for all of eternity. It's pretty cut and dry, right? And that's what the Scripture says. So the question is, what, is our, what are our glorified bodies going to be like? Well, we do know it's going to be like our body now, but not like our body now. It is going to be a body. Jesus had His glorified body when He rose from the dead. Jesus was able to eat, remember? When He ate the fish and the bread of the disciples. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that Jesus put the fish in his mouth, but it fell on the ground like he didn't put it. No, it's a body that was able to enjoy physical food, but it was not limited by space and time. Jesus was able to walk through walls, so forth and so on. So we could say this, if you're going to write it down and remember it, a glorified body is a recognizable you that does not decay. That's it. It's a recognizable you that will not decay. Yes? Well, Jeff, when you die, I think your soul and your spirit goes and your body's laying in the ground. So maybe all our souls and things don't age like our bodies do. Okay, okay, yeah. Good, good point. Um, and that is actually, well, what about believers right now? Do they have their glorified bodies? They do not. That comes at the resurrection, according to, to the Bible. Okay. Well, does that mean that people are just like floating around in the presence of God? No. It says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our body is not who we are. It is our soul or our spirit. That is the real us. And sometimes that image bothers people that we don't have the believers who have died and gone to be with the Lord don't have a physical body like this in front of the Lord. But Paul, throughout the book of Romans, speaks about and even in Galatians, like, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? The real me wants to serve Christ, but I have this body, I get tired, I get ticked off, I have lust, I have anger, and all of that will be taken away. So really we could say that to be our spirits are in the presence of the Lord is really a better thing than to be absent from the Lord in our physical body. I say, well, when do we get the glorified body? The glorified body is given to us when Jesus returns. And we'll talk about this next week, the second coming of Jesus. And the Judgment Day. My position is that um, whether the rapture comes at the beginning of the seven years, in the middle, or at the end, the return of Christ is at the end of the tribulation. That's when He actually returns and takes names and kicks tail. That may be a little too crass, but when you read the book of Revelation, you're talking about a lot of bloodshed, and He's the one who's doing it. That's when we see the side of Jesus that is Judgment Righteous judgment. So, um, any any question? Yeah. On judgment day, is that when we get our rewards? We're going to talk about that next week. But <laughs> but read Second Corinthians chapter five. There's going to be a different judgment. For example, this this may help in Revelation chapter twenty, the Great White White Throne Judgment. Believers will not be there. That is unbelievers being judged on the level to which they rejected the knowledge of God. For believers, we do not stand in judgment to God as if he's going to say, you get to come in or you don't. What will be judged for us is what we did with what the Lord gave us to use for him. You say, "Well, does that mean that he's going to punish us?" No, I believe that those rewards have to do with the level of enjoyment that we will have in heaven. Because even the rewards that we get, I think we're going to cast all those crowns before the feet of Jesus. And so, um, and then we'll also talk about next week: what do we do with people who both claim to be saved, and let's say they are, but they cannot stand each other? Seriously, church problems like that—they they can't stand each other. I'm never going back to church with that person. I will never... Well, how do those people enter into heaven outside of God doing some really weird thing that He alters their personalities to where they're not really themselves anymore? We're going to talk about that question of the, the judgment of the believers called the Bema Seat Judgment and what God does to us so that heaven wouldn't be heaven with an asterisk. Okay? So... I hope that we answered a few, few questions tonight. That once, the, I guess we could summarize it this way, that when a believer dies, they go into the presence of the Lord, their spirit is there, they're not lacking anything, alright? It's not a subclass of existence, it's actually better than us. We will receive our glorified bodies at the return of Christ at the end of the seven years. And I had a video that I was going to share last week. That I was going to show this week, but alas we are out of time. It's a four minute video on a professor who I believe is in his eighties, Roy Fish, Southwestern Seminary, I actually taught my parents when they were students there um, three reasons why we need to share the gospel. These past three weeks I hope will be very evangelistic for us, motivating us to share Jesus, because this stuff is not informational. We're talking about real people going to the lake of fire for all eternity, but I mean that that is that should be transformational for my heart. So next week, and, uh, and any questions you guys have, just save them up and we'll hopefully knock them out the next couple of weeks.